Welcome to Imperfect Leaders. We invite the country's most admired leaders in business, sports, and education, and ask them to share practical lessons and advice with our listeners. After all, there's no such thing as a perfect leader. The only question is, are you willing to listen and learn from the very best? If you want to share comments or questions or recommend future guests, visit www.imperfectleaders.com. Until then, sit back and enjoy today's show. It seems like every day now we open the newspaper and read about yet another corporate scandal. It feels like the country is screaming for better leaders, especially in corporate America. We're craving CEOs with character and with integrity. Unfortunately, we often don't know the true colors of a CEO until after a scandal rips apart the company and after many people are hurt, the employees, the shareholders, family members. But this all begs a very important question. Why can't boards do better diligence before the CEO is hired? You may be really surprised to find out that even something that seems so harmless, like a couple of speeding tickets or a big new house, can provide some important clues to the underlying character of the CEO in question. Today's guest, Professor Aisha Day, an extremely popular instructor at the Harvard Business School, has some very practical and well-researched advice for all of us who care about leadership and integrity, and especially for boards considering a new CEO hire. So sit back and enjoy today's conversation with Professor Aisha Day. So Aisha, I think your research takes direct aim and perhaps the biggest challenge in corporate America. How can you tell if a leader, especially a CEO, has integrity or character? Exposed? Of mm -hmm. course, it's clear because the fraud has happened and you know this person made wrong decisions or bad decisions. But ex ante, he could seem a perfectly high integrity, very capable candidate. And by the way, uh, people who may make bad decisions for shareholders may have a lot of fantastic qualities too, which is why boards probably hired them in the first place. They're risk takers. They think outside the box. They have a great track record in different ways. So, I mean, it's a challenging thing to judge. You know, if, you, if we all knew who was going to be good or bad, we would never be in a situation where we had fraud. So it's, it's, it's definitely a hard metric. And I'm sure boards are doing the best they can. Um, Think about it. So, so CEOs have um, a lot of responsibility in the firm. They are in positions of power to the extent that their decisions are leading to how much earnings a company has, what products they, which, what investments they make, should they acquire another firm, etc. These are all leading to creating value for a lot of stakeholders. So, you know, think about employees investors who have perhaps invested their life savings in the firm or, or the market. So, so when they are making decisions, not based on maximizing shareholder or stakeholder value, but for their own self-interest, mm -hmm. that can really create a lot of loss in many different ways for many stakeholders. So that's a very clear link to why you want someone who is really engaged in creating stakeholder value. Is it, is it part of human nature, though, that an individual, regardless if that person is just a, a frontline employee or a CEO, is from time to time going to make some decisions based on their self-interest and not putting the big the company with the big letter C first and foremost? 
I mean, this is where I think character it really uh, comes into play. Like, uh, you know, usually companies, and this is part of governance too, is they will align incentives to understand that people are self-interested. All of us want to do, you know, things that help us progress as individuals. And the, the choice becomes difficult when your goals and the company's goals are at odds. I think that's when it gets to be a difficult choice. And that's when true character perhaps comes into play. Uh, what do you do when you're at a crossroads? And this is part of the governance is designing compensation and incentives to align the objectives so that, you know, we don't, we try to avoid as many of these crossroad type of cho uh, choices. So the board's single most important responsibility is still CEO succession planning, you know, picking the right CEO to lead the entire company. And if you don't pick the right leader, a ton of things can go wrong. Uh, but this does beg an important question. You know, how do boards currently assess the character of their top CEO candidates? You know, like you say, they may have a great track record and, you know, they, their resume just pop off the screen on a LinkedIn profile. But how do you actually tell if that candidate has great character and integrity? You, you know, I had a alumni session with a lot of the HBS uh, executives and I was presenting my work on, on the role of personality and how some of the personalities we've studied, how they are related to potential risks. And one of the things we studied was whether they had legal infractions in their personal life. Hmm. And what was interesting is a lot of uh, the executives who were on boards, they said, we don't even look at this stuff, hmm. especially for people who have come up within the ranks. Like one of the things we found in our study was even minor infractions like speeding or traffic tickets are strongly correlated with those committing fraud and bending the laws. So even small infractions like that on average, and so they were like, should we be thinking about all this? We don't even care, especially if they happened a few years ago. We don't even look at this. But you're saying that the board should actually be as diligent looking at um, um, the infractions and on in the personal lives of both the internal and the external candidates? Uh, that's, I mean, again, it's a suggestion based on our research where we find that um, those executives uh, who have had even minor, and of course severe, but even minor infractions are more likely to uh, engage in frauds, earnings management and other undesirable outcomes. So to the extent we have such a strong result there, I mean, one suggestion um, uh, I'm offering is that, you know, perhaps any succession planning internal or external, the boards could just be more mindful of such infractions, especially if they are recent or recurring. And what is the red flag or the personality flaw from a character point of view of excessive speeding tickets? So, so this is where I draw on, um, you know, the uh, psychology literature. So the psychologists have been doing these studies for decades, right? And it just took a while for it to come into the financial world because we have, we assume that everyone will behave the same if you give them the right incentives. But what psychologists just found that personal traits are very important in driving how you behave, regardless mm -hmm. of other incentives in place. So the if you talk about uh, legal infractions and speeding tickets, the deep down construct that it's building on mm -hmm. is your inability to control yourself 
a deep disregard for rules and laws and the feeling that these really these barriers are they don't apply to you and you can do whatever that will help promote your interests. So this, this disregard for rules, laws, the lack of self-control, these are the con constructs which show themselves externally in the form of criminal infractions, legal infractions, even minor ones. So that's the deep-rooted um, construct. What about some other red flags from a personality point of view? Um, I think I remember you talking about extravagance or what is that all about? Yeah, so the so the reason we wanted to again we um, we were you know standing on the shoulders of giants here. We looked at the psychologists who have talked about this construct of materialism. So uh, so this is uh, really what materialistic. It's a fundamental human trait, uh, according to the psychologist, which is you have this thing, you have this affinity for material goods and, and your desire to accumulate more and more material goods is for status, ego, because you weight these extreme, extrinsic motivations more than intrinsic values like loyalty, love, benevolence. And the goal is, of course, it's all a continuum and the very materialistic people are going to go for stuff, materialistic stuff at the cost of other values, even if they have to hurt their family, friends, colleagues, and themselves uh, in some cases. So uh, so this tendency of I'm going to get more and more stuff regardless of the cost to others. So that's the underlying construct uh, reflected in extravagance. Um, and is this regardless of the cost to others a really important point? I mean, um, because if I think about most of the CEs, CEOs I know, almost all of them have very big houses. So Exactly. Is um, absolutely. So the cost to others is a big deal, right? Which is why in our sample, we have to control for wealth. We have to, it's all relative to your peers, whatever that peer. So CEOs are all of the same. They all generally have the same wealth. So that's important because, I mean, Having a lot of wealth is if you work hard, you earn money, that, that there's nothing wrong in that at all. And so what materialism is not about possessions per se, it's about your affinity for gathering that regardless of the cost. If you're willing to hurt other people, the environment, um, your family, your friends to get there. And that's the problematic piece. Um, for, for example, you know, someone like, and you know, Bill Gates is not in our sample, um, but he has extreme amount of uh, assets, etc. But he also gives back a lot to the community. And uh, one very good example of frugality is if you think about Warren Buffett, mm -hmm. extremely wealthy, but look at his, he still lives in the same house he used to forever. So, so if I'm a, a, a diligent board member considering a CEO candidate that looks great on paper and I love his or her track record, how do I find out about all of these things that you're talking about? I mean, do I put this candidate through kind of a rigorous psychological assessment process? Uh, do I hire a private detective to go, you know, find out what uh, their house looks like and, um, you know, if they have speeding tickets? And then how do I even normalize all of that data? So uh, first of all, I, I want to state firmly that there is no reason to not hire somebody because they have a few speeding tickets or they have houses, et cetera. So I, I, that is not what our research can say. All we can say is, you know, our proxies, of course, are noisy. And on average, we find this correlation. So first message to boards, do not 
not hire someone because they have two houses, please, or, or a speeding ticket or two. And that is not what, what the message is. But we as researchers could obtain this data. It took a long time, but you know there are private investigators who have a license to look at, um, in the US at least, and I'm pretty sure in some other countries, at least in uh, Europe, you can look at any uh, personal legal records over time. We could, so anyone can, uh, at least in the US. So that that information is public. Uh, the way we found uh, data on houses, homes, you know, we literally, uh, again, the same organization that gave us the list of prop, um, criminal records can give you a list of properties. So it's, again, publicly available information. We we went to Zillow and found out the current market values. And so, so I guess, long story short, if we as researchers manage to get the data, I'm sure anyone can. But what could boards do with it? I mean, like I said, if if you do find that somebody has repeated and you know recent legal infractions, you can at least pay attention to. Them. So suppose the board you know really likes this candidate and they see that she has you know some recent and recurring speeding tickets. Should they just automatically disqualify that person? No. Or should they have a grown-up, you know, conversation with that candidate and talk about it with her? It's uh, it's this is a very hard question, Jeff. I mean, um, if this is a perfect candidate with a few speeding tickets, I I would hire them if they're a good fit. Just be conscious uh, of the decisions they're taking. If they seem to, so clearly one one um, idea could be they are a risk taker. Mm -hmm. uh, they just want to go full ahead, which could be very desirable for shareholders. They really want to pursue an opportunity, et cetera. But as a board, we can remember uh, that, okay, they they have a, they have, they are, are a bit of a risk taker. I should just carefully evaluate the proposal on the desk here that they're presenting and be more mindful. Should we really think harder about this, et cetera. So I would definitely not discourage hiring a person who seems to have a lot of fantastic qualities because they have a few feet speeding tickets. And, and do you think that people that, you know, say they have multiple speeding tickets and a couple of other red flags and warning signs, but they come to the board and they say, hey, even the Bible and the Torah says, you know, second chances, I can change. Should, I mean, should the board pay any credence to that or is it really hard for people to change? But, but this is, this is, the es essence of the problem. So, you know, when I visited the Securities and Exchange Commission for a year, uh, I did a presentation of my work and they were really in intrigued in the enforcement division. Like, you know, how do we identify risk of fraud in a firm? And so far we look at quantitative, uh, like, you know, ratios, et cetera. But these are qualitative factors, but it's difficult to act exactly because of things you're saying. There are privacy issues. Mm -hmm. There are second chances. So, which is why... It's hard for me to say just stop even hiring because you know second chances are important. So all I can say is absolutely be mindful of that. So if something is recent and recurring, mm -hmm. maybe that's a little more of a warning sign than something that happened five, 10 years ago. And maybe the person made bad choices then and are moving on, are not doing it anymore. So you have to sort of weigh the, the timing, uh, the frequency, things like that. And intensity. Intensity, ex exactly. Um, so in fact, one of our studies, we did find that the intensity mattered. We did a, a study on if you have legal infractions, do you also incite a trade? 
And we find those with more severe did more of that, had more profits from uh, trading their company stock versus the minor. So intensity matters is what we found. So interesting. And and I know people listening, listening to this podcast are saying, well, what about some of the greatest innovators of our generation? You know, like like Steve Jobs and Elon Musk and Zuckerberg, you know, they seem like rule breakers. They think different. They break things. Does this in any way find the face of your research or is it perfectly compatible? Uh, you know, so this is this is the thing is like some of these people who think outside the box, they can be a dark side, but they can also be brilliant in so many ways. And in fact, in uh, one of our studies in the banking sector, we found that materialistic individuals, they uh, the, through their choices, they firms led by the materialistic CEOs have the highest tail risk. So the riskiest, the lowest returns, et cetera, but they also have the highest tail returns. So the highest set of returns as well. So they take them to both ends. So clearly they have a lot of good qualities as well, which is why they're in the firms. They may have a, a dark side too. So I think that's the, the trade-off in some cases. Uh, that you know, some people who can also take their firms, and this is why they perhaps make those huge returns to the innovation because they're okay with bending the rules. The question is, mm -hmm. especially if you're in a bank, which is kind of the pulse of the economy, mm -hmm. do you want such people? So this is a very big question for regulators. For sh shareholders, probably love it because they would love those that you know uh, hit hard and and get huge returns. Mm -hmm. But the questions in terms of the economy as a whole is a bigger one. And so absolutely. So, I mean, does, does industry matter or, you know, if I'm in a bank or if I'm in high tech or suppose I'm even a venture capitalist, in some ways, should I be looking for people that like to break the rules because they want to come and disrupt, you know, an entire industry and they want to do things totally different? I mean, is there potentially, an, uh, you know, another side to the same point? You know, I, one thing I do want to, while all of several of the traits are correlated, what we found in terms of breaking rules, it's not the same as risk takers. Mm -hmm. uh, these are different. Of course, you have to have a element of risk taking to break the rules because you are taking the chance that you won't get caught or whatever. But risk taker is a different attribute and risk taking is great. Like for example, in a bank, it's in the business of risk. Of course, you're going to take risks, mm -hmm. but you also have good risk controls in place. So, so risk taking is not the same as those that want to break the law who have a disregard for law. So they're separate constructs. Mm -hmm. So absolutely go for risk takers, go for those who are disruptive, innovative. That's, that's a fantastic trait. It has nothing to do with, I'm going to hurt others or break the laws when it suits my purpose. So I think they're different. So they're, they're different, but is there some kind of correlation between rule bending, you know, the speeding to get somewhere faster and creating this culture of risk-taking? So I, I think that rule breakers are, could be risk takers, of course, because you're taking a chance by simply breaking the rule. But I don't think that if you're a risk taker, you uh, that you necessarily have to be. You could be, I'm going to take all the chances, but I'm going to stay within the guidelines of law. No, it's so interesting. And then from a governance point of view, you know, should the board be talking frequently about what the appropriate level of risk actually is for the, the organization? 
And, you know, I, I'm sure they do as well. For example, depending on the phase of the company, if you're in growth stage, for example, and you want to, like, maybe you have to take more risks to grow, to innovate, et cetera. And, and I'm sure, in fact, I do know just from colleagues and friends who are on boards that this is a conversation they have, how much risk should be taken. Like I said, taking risks is, is not a bad thing, but not having proper risk controls in place mm. is not good good risk governance like what, what do you mean proper controls like what are some examples of that you know i know that you're an expert in this like I, i'm curious to know what companies do as a practical matter to keep things in check like for example like banks uh, they have a, a a risk department evaluating sensitivity analysis like they do they have people like making sure the decision what happens if uh, you know, this investment doesn't pan out, have we had to, what are fallbacks? I mean, there are people in departments that are actually devoted to making sure there's a chief risk officer in a lot of banks whose, whose sole job is to assess the sensitivities of certain decisions. So companies can invest in um, various processes mm -hmm. that can assess the degree of risk and fallback options if uh, if certain investments don't pan out, et cetera. Let's say your chief risk department or your chief risk officer sets that these are the boundaries beyond which we won't accept the level of risk. Uh, these are the percentages or higher, lower level. And if you have um, proposals coming in from a person that exceed, you know, go beyond the boundaries a lot, you could either nix the project or the board can sit and talk about it. Do we want to accept these even if they are beyond the levels we've stipulated? So they can at least identify perhaps uh, proposals that are not within the risk boundaries. And what about whistleblowers? What, what role do they have in keeping the CEO or even the entire culture in check or compliant? You know, whistleblowers are such an important corporate governance tool, and they are becoming more and more important. In fact, um, I have done some work on whistleblowers as well, uh, and I'm currently uh, doing. When I uh, was at the SEC, I remember one of the things they were very um, excited or interested in building up more policies on is whistleblowing, because they they have been very, mostly very reactive uh, in coming in taking uh, control of uh, fraudulent actors. So after the fraud has happened, they come in with the penalties, et cetera, and uh, other uh, repairing actions. The problem is they want to be more proactive instead of reactive because once fraud has happened, there has been so much loss in resources and damages that it's really almost too late if they could be more proactive, that if you could catch something in the early stages, we can prevent so much loss of resources. So how so do you do that? That's the thing. So whistleblowing, that's why, is such a critical tool because who is likely to know most about if something is going wrong in, in a firm is probably the employees who are either seeing it or um, you know are perhaps consciously or... Uh, not being a, not aware of it, but part of it, et cetera. So employees know a lot more. They have a lot more information than those external to the firm. And employees do form perhaps the highest proportion of whistleblowers uh, that, that exist. So the idea is if we can motivate them to come forward. I mean, it's extremely costly for whistleblowers to come forward. They Most of them are fired. They get pushed back, they get retaliated on in the firm. 
it's difficult you know to find another job so it's very hard to motivate even a well-meaning employee to really come forward and take the risk so how do you keep them safe so this is why uh, Dodd-Frank uh, and the SEC came up with a lot of rules. For example, they, they have to be anonymous so nobody gets to know if they come to the SEC, they're anonymous. They have uh, financial rewards and companies are not allowed to retaliate. Again, all of this is theoretically. In our research, we actually- well, what, what, do you mean, what do you mean a financial reward? So, uh, so suppose a whistleblower brings forward a tip to the government and the, the government then decides to pursue the tip and go after the firm, do their investigation, et cetera. And they find that, okay, the tip was right. And these two people are really involved in fraud and the whistleblower alerted us early enough. Then the whistleblower gets 25 to 30% of the rewards hmm. from, uh, from the process. So that's the financial benefit. So this is a way to incentivize uh, someone to, it, it's really, um, uh, trying to cover the cost because whistleblowers, like I said, they face a lot of costs in coming forward. So at least there's a financial benefit to justify doing so. so Does that potentially create some sort of perverse incentives, like you know people wanting to speak up just because they don't like somebody or they have a bad boss? Then that is the that is the 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 opponents of financial incentives cite exactly that reason. They're like, this is gonna be people who are disgruntled employees, those who didn't get promoted, they will come forward for the financial benefit. And you know, why, why not? I would wanna hurt the firm anyway. And, and, and uh, you get a lot of frivolous tips. Mm. However, our research, that's what we wanted to examine. How do financial incentives on average work? And we actually do not find evidence mm. that if you increase financial incentives, that you're going to get more frivolous tips. Mm. We don't find that. We actually find you get better tips, higher quality tips that the government pursues and there's a settlement. And we also find that even when you increase financial rewards, it's not that the whistleblowers will go directly now to the authorities because, oh, look, we want to get the money. They still try to go within the firm first. Mm -hmm. That was so interesting. We found that on average, whistleblowers actually try to do the right thing. They try to tell their supervisor, their boss, look, we think there's something wrong here. The problem is more often than not, the supervisor either ignores them or pushes back or retaliates, mm -hmm. and then they are forced to go outside. Mm -hmm. And this doesn't change if there's more financial reward. So it's they're not being greedy or disgruntled they're still trying to do the right thing but it just so happens that when you increase the financial rewards those whose internal cost benefit was not being satisfied before is now being satisfied so they have the they feel like okay we can come forward because even if you're fired etc maybe there's going to be a compensation for the risks that we're taking. So how do you see this panning out in the future? I mean, do you think that there will be more a more prevalence of uh, whistleblowers? And do you think that will be beneficial and reining in uh, some of the bad behavior and encouraging better behavior? I, I think I, I think so, because with all of the um, resources and the energy being devoted to whistleblowing just from a regulatory and a firm level perspective, I think whistleblowers will become uh, a very important tool in corporate governance. And I do think it's going to be fantastic, again, not just from the point of view of regulators, because they can now catch something early on and investigate. And maybe the whistleblower is wrong, but it can be fixed sooner. 
But even from a firm point of view, I, I think that executives and boards can realize what a key asset whistleblowers are because not all fraud happens at the top level, right? So a lot of it is happening at middle levels too. And if you have someone alerting you to it sooner, you can fix the problem internally quicker, mm -hmm. which is good for your shareholders, et cetera. So I think whistleblowers are such an important resource, but unfortunately, I think it's more untapped. Like a lot of company hotlines don't work or, you know, the whistleblowers can't get their message across. So the more companies can do to, first of all, ensure safety to the whistleblowers that you, we are not going to retaliate, you're going to be fine, either through anonymity or whatever, so that they feel empowered to come forward. Is, is that I even possible? I mean, is it possible because because if I'm a potential whistleblower in a company, you know, again, like you say, my first step would be to go to a manager and I'm just going to think, you know, basic human nature, people are going to gossip and word is going to get out and people are going to call me a rat or like I can't be trusted or, you know, I'm airing my dirty laundry. Or if I think of a sports metaphor, you know, it stays in the locker room, you know, it doesn't go out to the press. That, that is exactly the challenge. And um we wrote a case on one of the uh, companies who was dealing with exactly the same issue that they wanted whistleblowers to come forward, but they knew that there were all these costs. So they um, started using technology. They hired a third party vendor to create this platform where a whistleblower would, they have this avatar. And I mean, there are different ways of anonymizing and it would finally go. Of course, there was a way to go. If the board wanted more information, they have to be able to contact the person. Mm -hmm. So so they use technology in a way to facilitate interaction, but complete mm -hmm. anonymity. So, I mean, again, we companies have to get innovative and some are, they're actually using technology to do this. Mm -hmm. And it's not easy. Like you said, there's so many, someone may find out and you don't want to be known as a rat, not even that, like, let's say this is a friend and employee you work with for years, then you maybe you don't even want to because, yes, this is not right, but I've known him for years. How can I even? So there are so many of these constraints. Yeah. And this is clearly a challenge. And, and some companies actually are trying to uh, figure out how to make this happen. Well, yeah. and, and I also had uh, the, the board chair of FINRA on the podcast and like the SEC, you know, they're thinking about these things deeply. Um, how should your research and your findings impact regulation from SEC, from FINRA, from Congress uh, and policymaking? What should they be doing differently or what should they be thinking about? You know, the, this is the question the uh, um, the SEC asked me as well. Uh, and then, you know, what do we do? Like, it's not just us. There are several researchers trying to look at these personality traits uh, and, and thinking of the risk of wrongdoing uh, and fraud. And, and we've all found on average that there's strong correlation, but from a regulatory point of view, there are privacy issues, there are ethical issues. It's difficult to act on this. So this is why, you know, the SEC is cautious. It's good to know, but we can't stop people, you know, second chances and all of these other and again, I am just talking freely. Sure. I, have, I am not an expert policymaker by any means whatsoever. All I do is research and present the results. Here you go. You decide what to do with this. Maybe it's it's not a bad thing for all of us to be subjected to background checks, especially if you're going to be in high leadership positions. But is that like big brother watching over you? I mean, will people accept that, especially in America? 
if everyone, if all of us are subject to a set of homogenous rules, um, you know, like in flying in some cases, right? We, we because of these several incidents, you know, we are, we are uh, background, we are occasionally taken out of line to, to be checked. So we are open to this because the goal is safety of everybody. So, I mean, I think this, there's also got to be a mindset shift because when one fraud happens, so many people lose so much. So, I mean, I, I think if you think of it in the, in the, in the context of the economy and a lot of people and, and some of who put all of their resources and earnings into this, and this is their livelihood. So, I mean, there's so much loss and required, but again, I, I don't know that there are so many difficult ethical issues involved that it's difficult for me to say that this is what regulators should do. Mm -hmm. All I can say is, you know, we took some theories in psychology, criminology, we tested it in a large sample of firms over a thousand. And we found that if given uh, with the caveat that our proxies are proxies, but we have stress tested them, mm -hmm. we find that these proxies, which are trying to test the underlying construct of disregard for laws, lack of self-control, uh, materialism, etc., they are strongly related to wrongdoing, insider trading, lack of risk controls, um, not investing enough in CSR, all these kinds. So we find that. Mm -hmm. Now, how we react with that information is um, is it's is difficult. We also acknowledge that, so we've shown this link. Mm -hmm. But the next step is well, um, at least we can be alert. If I'm a Wall Street investor and I know that there is a CEO that has these speeding tickets or these red flags, but the board has decided to give her the job or him the job anyway. Should I put a, a discount on the evaluation of that company because of I, the risk? I have to tell you, uh, somebody reached out to me. They have an investment fund based on CEO character. Wow. What, which one? It, um, it's, I don't know if I, sh well, I'm sure they won't mind. It's called ROC and it's called return on character. Wow. They, um, they actually make high returns. So basically what we find with our materialism construct, if you flip it around, materialistic is the opposite of materialism is frugal, like think Warren Buffett, right? Yeah. Very frugal. So another way of pitching our results is really trying to say, think of leaders who are extremely frugal. They have a long-term value orientation in mind. They have strong risk. They take risks, but they have strong controls in place. They really try to do what's best for it. So, so frugality is such a desirable concept. Yeah. This is our findings. Yeah. So we are thinking if you have a frugality index and you actually trade on that, do you make higher returns? And in our little test of portfolio, we do find you earn high alphas if you are following firms with very frugal leaders. But hey, that was just a small test. And Aisha, you're going to be so sorry you said that because I know, the Wall Street I guys are going to be saying I, being door. a nerdy academic is really preventing me from becoming rich. What can I say? <laughs> I mean, as crazy as Elon Musk seems half the time with his tweets, he's, he also, I, I hear, is a very frugal guy and like lives in a very small place and drives a modest, you know, obviously probably now drives a Tesla, but doesn't have an extravagant lifestyle. But this is why I'm saying is that risk taking or being, you know, is, is not the same as breaking the law or being so we actually in our research, this was a question other academics asked too. So how do you know this is not capturing some other trait? So we did a lot of tests to measure 
every trait we could think of, you know, narcissism, overconfidence, risk-taking, everything. And let's just do, is this what we are capturing? And it's not. So, you know, the psychology research really lays out. So we as humans, there are so many fundamental attributes of our characteristics or traits. These are very distinct. The materialistic attitudes are very distinct from, from lack narc- of self-control. And, and so narcissism, for example, another fundamental human trait for some people did not correlate as much. It, did not i mean they were not sig- significantly correlated at all with like you could be very materialistic but not as not so narcissism has other uh attributes so if you go deep into psychology it's fascinating what you discover how many small elements of our uh are out there uh, on the face it seems they're all the same but they're not so you're a professor now at the harvard business school and from a character point of view, what advice would you or do you give to some of your students who are themselves rising star leaders who have aspirations of becoming a CEO or a founder in the future? Like, how do you help them think through all of these, you know, nuanced subjects of, of character? And, you know, is it possible to, to shape how they think about that? So 80% of people, I think, are probably trying to do the right thing and they fall into bad situations. Mm -hmm. Perhaps 20% are very black and white. So of course, if you are, for lack of a better word, just dishonest and always pursuing self goals, it is hard to change that person's psyche because this is just what they will do. Mm -hmm. But with with my students, if you think about the broad 80%, they're going to be in very challenging roles as executives and CEOs. And there are going to be times when you have to make very difficult choices and they face so much pressure. This is the analyst benchmark. Uh, you know, I need to beat it. Otherwise the market's going to take a fall, but it's going to they just a lot of little things. Mm-hmm. If you go into the gray, it's never black and white. There are so many decisions that are so gray, especially in the financial world if you allow yourself to grow into the gray once, you feel this is just one time. I'm just gonna do it this one time. I'm gonna manage earnings by two cents. So it meets the estimates, I'll fix it going forward. It's gonna turn around, things are gonna look fine. But it's such a slippery slope that you, if it's psychologically, you give yourself permission once, you're gonna sometime later do it again if the chance arises because you've already done it. It's opened some kind of a door. Mm. So one advice I have, and I know this is extremely difficult for people in practice and you know so many decisions, sometimes you don't even know it's great, right? So, so I think one is have all the information because I've had cases, I just worked on a case with Mattel where the CEO did not even know that all these problems were going on and her subordinates were making these bad decisions. And she was the one who was held responsible and is in all the lawsuits, right? So one is have all the information you need from your subordinates, right? Get them so you know what's going on in the firm. And the second piece of advice is if it if there ever comes a point where you're, you know you're going in the gray, just don't. Just don't give yourself the permission even to go there once. I know this is a very philosophical, I'm just saying it uh, yeah. without being in the hot seat, but I mean, this is something I, I do in my personal life. And even for the smallest, it's it just, I do not, I aspire 
to never give myself permission, even for the smallest, because once you have, you've opened something subconsciously mm. that you can go there again. So maybe, so those are the two things, like do not go into the gray, have all the information you need to know that everyone is doing what is uh, right. It is the classroom, I mean, is this a benefit and part of the reason why great schools like HBS and other business schools where you can actually be in the classroom with your peers, doing case studies, talking about these things. I mean, is there a benefit? I don't know that you can become more ethical, but you can certainly better understand what the gray area looks like and what the slippery slope, you know, looks like. Absolutely. I mean, uh, discussing cases where you've seen other people go through that, make decisions and seen the outcomes certainly helps a increase awareness of what the gray is first of all some of the consequences and we've sometimes occasionally had um, good experience of such people who worked in prison even who come and tell you then they say don't do it i wish we knew this ourselves i mean it's just say that again you have your former prisoners come uh, ex-cons come i think I, I have heard that like at least one of our colleagues uh, wrote a book on this as well so not everyone is like i wrote a case on someone who's in prison who doesn't want to talk about it mm -hmm. so not most people will not be willing but there are others who are who are more forthcoming because they've you know done the time come out and do doing other things now uh, in a more um, ethical way etc and they'll tell you that the costs are so high that so I mean just hearing this just learning what the gray is just when you read as a third person into cases of this and you see the whole picture sometimes when you're in a situation you don't see the next steps mm -hmm. it's a different but when you see a case where the whole thing is laid out and you see the consequences, the costs to multiple people, and then you step back and reflect, is this what I want to be as a leader? I mean, it just opens some kind of awareness in them. Like I said, you know, if you have a bent of mind where you're just gonna be, if it's black and white, it's difficult to shape that. But I think the bulk of us are somewhere in between, right? Where we are shaped by environment, shaped by people. So the more we can teach them to be leaders who make a positive difference in the world, the more we can expose them to what the gray is, the consequences. The in hearing it from your peers, I would think not exactly. peer pressure, but is there some benefit of that having all of your, you know, 89 of your close friends there in a case discussion right next to you talking about it? Does that somehow, you know, shift your mindset? I mean, absolutely. I have seen amazing uh, discussions and not just in the context of wrongdoing in several things where, but that's the beauty of the case method teaching is you have hundred people, hundred minds, hundred experiences, hundred points of views, and they come together and sometimes they're at crossroads, which is where the debate happens. And I've seen people shift their perspective in wow. an 80 minute class, like from the beginning to the end, like, wow, I never realized I never thought about it from this this angle. And this is the beauty, I think, of the discussion-based classes. And it, it's uh, really wonderful to see how they impact each other through their own unique sets of experience. Thanks for joining, everyone. To share your thoughts about this episode or questions for any of our guests, you may join our community of imperfect leaders striving for greatness at www.imperfectleaders.com. You'll then have access to all past episodes, special content, and invitation-only roundtables with the country's most successful leaders 
business school professors, and executive coaches. See you next week, everyone.